Thank you, friends. Again, just a wonderful way of preparing our hearts to receive God's word this morning. Um, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians 7 with me. Uh, as we do so, uh, Randy asked me to make one more announcement that's to the men. Um, men's Bible study will not be taking place this Tuesday night. It'll uh, resume the following Tuesday, the 11th at 6.30 uh, in room 204. And they're gathering together uh, on those occasions to actually, they're, they're studying through the passage that's going to be preached in advance of Sunday's preaching. So there's a, a, good, a good number of guys in here who probably know this passage better than I do, which means we're just going to tag team it. When I stumble, Phil Watson, where are you? I'm going to tag you in. I'm going to tag out and... Uh, you take over, okay? <clears throat> All right. Well, it would be an understatement uh, to call our passage this morning interesting, right? You could probably tell just by the title in the bulletin. It's going to be more than uh, just a little bit interesting. And, and the reason I say that and the reason that I think the worship was so fitting leading us into our, our scripture this morning is that Paul has things to say that are at one and the same time both precious and hard, precious and hard. I don't think that's an oxymoron. In fact, uh, one of the key takeaways I hope uh, that will be true for us today is that we're able to leave here recognizing that in God's economy, hard does not necessarily equal bad, okay? In God's economy, hard does not necessarily equal bad. Now, it wasn't too long ago we preached through the book of Genesis, and I could cherry pick all kinds of examples that would prove the point. Uh, one that stood out to me, I preached the passage on Genesis 32 when God dislocates in the wrestling match Jacob's hip, which was clearly very hard for him, but for the good purpose, not just of breaking his hip, but breaking his self-reliant pride. Or maybe you remember the very well-known a story of Joseph being betrayed into slavery by his brothers, but at the end of that narrative, being able to have the perspective to say <clears throat> that though the brothers meant it for evil, that God meant it for good to keep, it, keep many people alive according to his promise. Or the best example, right, uh, the singular example of the event that was at one and the same time the hardest and also the greatest of the cross of Jesus Christ. So in God's economy, Hard does not necessarily equal bad, but in many cases we experience it that way, right? We experience hard and assume it's the equivalent of bad because sometimes we can't see beyond our circumstances. Sometimes we can't see the character of Christ that transcends those circumstances. So one of the things that I want, I hope, uh, that we'll be able to help one, do, help one another to do this morning is to offer each other encouragement that will help us to avoid wasting our hardships. I don't want us to waste those. I don't think Paul wants us to waste those, whether those are marital hardships or other forms of, of hardship. I also want you to know, in, in thinking through some scenarios that are both precious but can also be hard, uh, our passage talks about several specific kinds of relational hard today. And I know <clears throat> that for some of you, some of what we say today, some of what the passage says today is going to land on you in ways that feel hard. I know that. And some of you I know specifically, and some of you, I, I mean, I just know that it's out there in a crowd this large. Um, been praying for some of you as I've been thinking through and prepping for this message, some generically and then some specifically in the ways that I know that there's, there's hardship. But I want to assure you that there is gospel good in all of these forms of hard we're going to talk about today. If it feels hard for you this morning, remember, you don't see all that God sees and the pinch of God's word is meant for your good. It is meant to bind up and heal, not to belittle, right? Not to tear down. So let's pray and ask God to help us do all the things we need to do with our passage this morning. God, we come to you this morning asking for your aid. Help us to hear, proclaim, receive, repent, rejoice, encourage, humble ourselves, whatever might be necessary in light of how the word lands on us this morning. We pray that your spirit would take it and apply it in the multitude of ways uh, that this congregation needs your word this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> okay, last thing by way of intro. If God's word pinches this morning, I want you to know that we have help standing by. 
Um, Bree mentioned that the um, prayer team is gonna be around the front at the end of the service. There, if you need an immediate outlet for unburdening some of your griefs and some of your hard stuff, they're, they're, they're here in the aftermath immediately of, of today's message and concluding him to help you, to, to uh, encourage you, to pray with you, maybe to begin the process of pointing you in the direction of getting some help if that's appropriate. And then secondly, um, the, the, the church leadership here at Grace is, is aware, right, that, that you know, sometimes stuff could come to the surface that could be uniquely difficult, uniquely hard. Um, they're in the business of uh, as pastors of, of helping our congregation with all their different kinds of hard. And so if yours uh, gets provoked to the surface a little bit this morning, they're also ready and available to walk with you, to encourage you, to help you. So take advantage of that. Okay, uh, it's been a while since we've been in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> By my reckoning, the last time we preached from 1 Corinthians was back before Thanksgiving. So we've got to get our bearings a little bit. Here's a quick, a quick update on where we've been. Chapters one through four, basically Paul is addressing uh, the experience of division in Corinth on the basis of, you know, I like this speaker better and I like, you know, you like that speaker better. So they've got division based on their, their favorite orators and speakers. <clears throat> Paul's addressing that. In chapter five, uh, he addresses the fact that the community is tolerating incest amongst their people. In chapter six, he addresses lawsuits that are taking place between believers and other forms of sexual immorality. So when we get to 1 Corinthians chapter seven, we get to a pretty significant hinge in the book. In fact, uh, now, and, and for many of the upcoming chapters, he's going to be mainly responding to and addressing issues that they have written about in a letter that they sent to him. Now, we don't have that letter, but they sent him a letter and he's responding to it. That's why verse one of chapter seven says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And um, we're gonna get some of those today. And a number of others are gonna pop up in the chapters that are to come. But <clears throat> here's what I wanna do right at the outset. I wanna try to give you the big idea of what they're asking and how he's responding because it very well may be the case that their question isn't your question, right? It's unique, um, so try to get a handle on it and then we'll get about the business of unpacking it. Here, here's, here's the gist of, uh, in our passage, what, they've, what they're driving at and what Paul's responding to, okay? Some of the Corinthians are stating, or at least wondering, if things like marriage and sex in marriage might somehow be compromising their spiritual maturity. Okay? They're wondering if these uh, marriage and sex and marriage might be compromising their spiritual maturity. And so they're basically asking Paul, hey, in order to be maximally spiritual, shouldn't we, one, stop having sex in our marriages? Two, consider divorcing from those marriages entirely. And three, at the very minimum, at the very minimum, if I'm married as a believer to an unbeliever, shouldn't I divorce my unbelieving spouse so that I can be more spiritual, more pleasing to God, perhaps less contaminated by the unbelieving spouse? We could call this, what, their, their premise, or at least their question, we could call this the sexless spirituality hypothesis. Sexless spirituality hypothesis. That says those who are the least sexual are the most spiritual. The least sexual are the most spiritual. That's the link they're making or at least contemplating and they're pressing Paul for a response. Here's his governing point, and, and really in all of chapter seven, but his, his governing point in reply to them is this. Life in Christ transcends one station in life. Life in Christ is more important than the station in life. It governs all of our faithfulness, regardless of what station in life we may happen to be found. That's gonna be a huge theme of next week's sermon, but in our passage, that theme gets applied uh, to the stations of marriage and singleness in particular. Paul is saying, there is no change of life station that a believer can make that would make him or her more in Christ than he or she already is at the moment of conversion. So in other words, uh, divorcing won't make you more spiritual. Getting married won't make you more spiritual. Uh, ceasing sex and marriage won't make you more spiritual. He acknowledges that both marriage and singleness are gifts of God. And while it is not wrong 
for a believer to change stations in life. What he is saying is that we ought not to seek to change our station on the assumption that doing so will intrinsically make us more pleasing to God. That's not, that, that won't happen. That's his main, the thrust of his argument, okay? So we're gonna pick it up <clears throat> in verse one. We're gonna work our way through our passage in three main chunks, okay? The first chunk is uh, verses one through five. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Some of your translations might say it's good not to touch a woman. That's just a euphemism for having sex. They're talking about sex. Uh, Verse two, but because of the temptations to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Okay, right off the bat, we come to a huge fork in the road in terms of how to read this passage. And the fork in the road is, Uh, the statement, it's good not to have sexual relations with a woman. The question is, who's making that statement? Is that Paul's statement or is that the Corinthian statement? If Paul is saying it, if it's Paul's statement, then his argument is basically like, you know, marriage and sex are kind of a compromise with a less spiritual life, but I'm not gonna command you not to do that, right? Begrudgingly, sure, go go ahead, but it's not best. Uh, I don't think think that's the best way to go here. I think it's much more likely that this statement, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, is either a quotation or a summation of a point the Corinthians were making in the letter they sent to Paul. It's their statement, not his. Now, why should we think that? Well, first of all, we've got that comment at the beginning of verse one, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. He says, I'm turning my attention to reply to some things that you've said. And that phrase, now concerning, is gonna crop up again and again in many of our upcoming chapters. Uh, And in most cases, it signals that Paul's transitioning now to respond to something else that they asked him about, whether it's food sacrificed to idols or spiritual gifts, it's gonna come up on a number of different occasions. Second reason that it's probably not Paul's statement, but theirs, we know from Paul's teaching in other places on marriage and sexuality, so so think uh, 1 Timothy 4, for example, there he chastises people who would forbid marriage as those who are denying something that God created and intended to be good. We know that Paul's theology, his high view of marriage and sexuality are, re- are rooted in the pre-fall teaching of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, where God's good design for marriage is announced. And we see that in particular in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul takes that teaching and applies it to the gospel meaning of marriage, more broadly speaking. So it's very unlikely that Paul is commending the notion that marriage is a second-class form of spiritual living, right? It's probably not what's happening here. So they're making the claim, hey, sex and marriage compromises us spiritually, right? And and if that's true, shouldn't we abstain from doing that? They might even be leveraging or attempting to leverage Paul's own experience of and advocacy of the gift of singleness to try to make their point. But that's, that's what they're driving at. And Paul's response is actually no. If you are married, abstaining from sexual intimacy is in fact not the more spiritual thing to do. Again, he's got a very high view of marriage and uh, sex in marriage. He commends it, right? His response comes in verses two through five. He commends their sexual intimacy, uh, especially in verse five. And in verse five, he even commands it, right? Do not deprive one another. At its best, sex in marriage is not only healthy and unitive, but also it has the capacity to be expressive of the gospel and to serve as a tool in spiritual warfare. Now that sounds like a pretty crazy claim, doesn't it? How in the world can sex express the gospel and be a tool in spiritual warfare? Okay, good question, glad you asked. Here's what I wanna do. I wanna give three theses, three theses on how sex in marriage can be expressive of the gospel. But before I do that, gotta make a caveat, okay? And the caveat is this. 
Paul is not, some, it's, it's been taken this way sometimes, Paul is not talking about a spouse's duty to be used and objectified in marriage. That's not his point. That's not what one authority over one another's body is talking about. He's not saying you've got to deal, you just got to take, you, you got to deal with whatever they're dishing out because your spouse has authority over your body. You should not feel endangered in your marriage. And if you do, you should speak with me or one of the leaders of grace at the end of the service. We want to help you, okay? That's, that's not what he's talking about. All right, three positive theses. Thesis number one, here's how I'm, here's how I'm going to put this. Sex in marriage is not dirty and also not ultimate. Not dirty, not ultimate, okay? Not dirty first. When I say not dirty, I'm just using that language to kind of kind of hold the place for the Corinthian view that maybe sex is spiritually compromising, that it, that it weakens my ability to please the Lord. We've already seen that sex uh, in marriage is made by God as something good from the beginning, but more importantly, and in terms of expressing the gospel, sex in marriage is hugely significant theologically speaking because of what it is, okay? Here's what sex in marriage is theologically speaking. It is a covenant renewal ceremony, covenant renewal ceremony. Um, Biblical covenants have signs. Abraham's covenant has the sign of circumcision. Noah's covenant has the sign of the rainbow. The marriage covenant has the sign of sexual intimacy. The sign is not the totality of the covenant, but it's expressive of and points to the larger reality of the covenant. Um, One of the signs of the new covenant is the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, right, as often as you do this and rem- eat and drink in remembrance of me, we're saying, right, with our, with our ingesting, when we take the Lord's Supper, as often as we do that, we're saying to Christ, I still do. I'm still under the blood. I'm still I'm fumbling, stumbling, bumbling this week, maybe, but I still do. Still walking with you, still trusting, still repenting, right? <clears throat> still persevering. When he and she make love in the covenant uh, marriage bed, their bodies are expressing to one another, I still do. 10 years later, 20 years later, 50 years later, 60 years later, I still do. It's, a, it's an embodied form of renewing the vow. Yeah, maybe we're r- bumbling, stumbling, fumbling. Maybe we've had a hard week. Maybe we've had a hard year. Maybe we've had a hard decade. I'm paying the vow. It's an, and, and so it's precious, right? I mean, there, there, there's some, some supreme uh, supremely gospel-centered significance in terms of what's taking place between the sheets. It is not just biological itch-scratching. It's a big deal. So sex isn't dirty, right? It, it's not only is it not dirty, it is good, but it also isn't ultimate. Sex in marriage points beyond itself. And that's another thing that Paul is driving at in verse 5 when he talks about this thing <clears throat> that we, we could call it a sex fast, Right? He says it can't be unilaterally enforced, but it can be jointly determined, right, by a couple for a period of time uh, for the purposes of devotion to prayer. You can set something good like sex to the side for the purposes of, of joining your hearts together in prayer. He says you can, you can do that. Why? Because sex is an ultimate. When, when we fast, whether it's from a meal or from sex in marriage, we're not saying that the thing we're fasting from is bad or corrupt, right? Food's good, sex is good, but we are saying it isn't ultimate, And so it can be deferred or set to the side. And that sex fast, the possibility of doing that, anticipates a day to come when the union of sexual intimacy will no longer be part of the married couple's experience. And get this, if you've got a great marriage, this may be hard to believe. It won't be there, and you won't miss it. Okay, verses 29 to 31, talk about that a little bit. Neil, that's a part of uh, Neil Harden. Uh, he's gonna be preaching that, pa- uh, that passage in two weeks. He's gonna, I can't wait, I can't wait to hear Neil. I just, I really appreciate him. Love how his mind works, it's gonna be awesome. Um, <clears throat> but here's how I know, Here, right? Here, here's how we know that when, when you get there, you won't, you won't miss sexual intimacy in marriage, okay? Um, some of the structure of the progress of of biblical theology or redemptive history, some of the structure um, follows the the guidelines of foreshadow moving into fulfillment, 
foreshadow moving into fulfillment. Foreshadow's good, it's always good, right, in terms of what it anticipates. But the foreshadow points beyond itself. And when the thing that fulfills the foreshadow arrives, nobody says, oh, I wish I could go back and live under the terms of the foreshadow. Easy example, animal sacrifices in the Old Testament. They were great. In their time, they were great, covering, pointing beyond themselves. When Jesus arrives, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and fulfills that ministry, nobody says, no, nobody came in here today saying, you know what I, what, what I really wish I could do, what I'm really missing out on is shedding the blood of some bulls and goats for the temporary covering of my sins until the time. Nobody, nobody says I wish I could go back and live under the terms of the foreshadow, right? We're happy to be in the day of, well, the same thing is true with, okay, so call this little M marriage. It's good. From Genesis 1 and 2, it's good, but it is a foreshadow. It is pointing forward to, now in, in Ephesians 5, right, we're beginning to experience this right now in terms of the Christ Church relationship, which is capital M marriage, but the full realization of that experience is yet to come, and when it does, the shadow will give way to the reality, and we won't miss the shadow. As hard as that may be to believe, we won't miss the shadow. That's thesis number one, not dirty, not ultimate. Thesis number two. Sexual union in marriage is a means of serving one another in the form of spiritual warfare. Now again, right, crazy, earthy, practical statement. One commentator uh, that I read was trying to get at the point <clears throat> like this. He said that sex in marriage is supposed to have the element of delight, but it's also supposed to have the element of responsibility responsibility to help protect your partner because of how good the enemy is at co-opting our sexual desire. So there's an element of protection of one another. Now that, that may not sound maximally romantic, but it is very realistic. Don't misunderstand me, sex in marriage is not the only tool in the couple's pursuit of sanctification, but it is a tool in the pursuit of the couple's sanctification. <clears throat> and, and while we'll get in a minute to some things that having authority over one another's body doesn't mean, while there are things it doesn't mean, the purpose of serving one another's sanctification is very positive, right, and gospel-oriented. Thesis three. <clears throat> the goal of their sexual intimacy in marriage is oneness. Oneness, that's the goal, that's the overarching goal. That oneness is meant to be holistic and not just sexual. And most profoundly, it is meant to be reflective of the oneness that occurs in our union with Christ. It's pretty profound, right? Now again, Paul doesn't say everything he thinks about sex and marriage in 1 Corinthians 7. He's addressing a specific question with a specific answer. So we've got to reach to some other pieces. Just to flesh out a couple of things here, very broadly, right? So reaching back to Genesis, which Paul himself reaches to, um, one fleshing and leaving and cleaving, they go together. That's a package deal, right? One fleshing happens in the context where a man and a wife are leaving family of origin and cleaving together. That means that their intimacy, their intimacy in marriage is holistic and not just sexual. And it needs to be cultivated in an ongoing fashion. Here's where a lot of us go wrong. A lot of us wrongly assume that the wedding day is the finish line of the pursuit of intimacy. So I work hard and I woo hard and pursue and, and then we say I do and then, okay, we did it, yay, and you're gonna coast on fumes for 50 years. The wedding day is the starting line of the pursuit of ongoing, well-rounded, holistic intimacy. It is not the finish line. It's where that race begins. <clears throat> excuse me, not where that race ends. And I would suggest to you that in terms of cultivating that intimacy, I would suggest we, we, we can think about that in at least three dimensions, okay? Maybe more than three, but at least three dimensions. Um, here we go. Uh, dimension number one, right, that he and she are cultivating, holistic intimacy, is face-to-face -face intimacy, face-to-face. 
in conversation, in communication, in prayer, in sharing burdens, date night, lovemaking, all of those things, right? Face-to-face interaction with one another. That must be cultivated in an ongoing fashion. Um, Dimension two is the side-by-side dimension of their intimacy, Okay, now, and this is realistic, right? Because they got to do more than just go on 24-7 date night. So uh, they got to pay bills together. They got to raise kids together. They got to do work together. Maybe they garden together. They deal with life's challenges together. Um, They have to make decisions about what to do with his parents or her parents when they get older, right? There is business taking place. There, there, there are home economics being uh, unpacked and, and, and figured out. But, and, and this is where we, just, we have to be careful, that, that is a necessary component of their intimacy, but it can't be the only component of their intimacy. Because if, 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 if uh, component number one recedes and this is all they do, then they just feel like business partners, like roommates. They, just, they inhabit the same space and transact business together. But they're more than that, right? They're covenant sanctification partners. They're intimacy partners, not just business partners, even though they are business partners. You with me so far? Face-to-face, side-by-side, and then dimension three, back-to-back, okay? Back-to-back is the spiritual warfare side. It's the fighting posture. It's, you know, I got your back, you got mine. I know that she has an enemy who wants to devour her faith. She knows that I've got an enemy that wants to devour my faith, and we're fighting on one another's behalf, right? Now, certainly that in many ways, I mean, that looks like prayer, that looks like bearing burdens, that looks like confession, that looks like forgiveness, that looks like repentance. But one of the things Paul tells us, it also looks like lovemaking, right? And lovemaking certainly fits in category number one, but it seems that it fits in category three as well as an expression, not just of itch scratching, but of covenant sanctification. And again, that's a beautiful way uh, that that points not just to sex, but to the gospel. Okay, quickly want to clarify, I think, three things. One, two, three, three things that having authority over one another's body doesn't mean, okay? Because it's easy to go wrong here. Um, Here's the first thing it doesn't mean. Having authority over one another's body does not mean that I get to blame my spouse for my sin if I think we're not having sex frequently enough. It's not what it's saying, okay? The married person has to be a faithful steward of his or her sexuality just like the single person does. And so it doesn't matter. I mean, if, if there are seasons where one spouse is deployed or they've just had a kid or there's medical disability of some kind or even if your spouse, like the Corinthians, is contemplating or actually withholding sex from you on the grounds that he or she thinks it'll make them more spiritual. And Paul says that shouldn't be happening. Even if your spouse were doing that, his or her disobedience would not justify my own. It would not justify your own. Now, that may be a peculiar kind of hard that you need to ask for some help with. And again, we've got people standing by to help with that, but it wouldn't justify our own sin, okay? So it doesn't mean that. Number two, uh, it, it does not give us license to make demands from our spouses, okay? We're not sexual demanders. Um, when Paul's writing this part of the passage, he's He's actually not addressing the one directly. He's not directly addressing the one who's being withheld from, but the one who's contemplating doing the withholding. So his point is not so much what you owe to me, but what I should do for you. Right? Not what you owe to me, but what I should do for you. This cannot be wielded as a weapon. This passage, think of it more along the lines of the statement in Romans 12.10 that says we should outdo one another or seek to outdo one another in showing honor. It's pretty good competition, right? And then Paul says apply that to the marriage bed. Uh, Third thing that it doesn't mean, third thing that it doesn't mean, even though Paul commends their sexual intimacy in marriage, He is not doing so in a way that gives license for married couples to express any sexual behavior they can conjure, okay? Since the point of sex 
And marriage is to express intimacy across the scope of the entirety of the relationship. Sexual expression that is not intimate is off limits to the Christian couple. Married sexuality absolutely can be passionate and full of delight, but the spouse is a covenant intimacy partner and not an object. He and she are operating a marriage bed, not an adult film studio. If the contemplated behavior is degrading or objectifying, if it is a form of doing to rather than sharing with, then it's not what God intended, and it should be forsaken in pursuit of what is more intimate and meaningful. Now, if we were in another context, I would pause here and I would get more specific if we were just, just had you know, married couples, maybe engaged couples, but another time, right? Suffice it to say that as married couples are pursuing union, oneness, intimacy, their lovemaking will always be good in the eyes of God. And that is precious. Okay, <clears throat> last thing on uh, one, verses one through five, uh, real quick. It's indirect, but it comes up so frequently um, in, in most marriages, or, or frequently in, in a lot of marriages, it should be addressed. What, what if the couple's at an impasse, right? It's not Paul's direct concern, but I think he gets there. What if one person is desirous, one person isn't? What do they do? They both have authority over one another's bodies. They're trying to put the interest of the other ahead of themselves. How do you proceed? Well, first of all, that's a pretty nice problem to have, right? They're trying to outdo one another, showing honor in the marriage bed, and, and, but they're at an impasse. What do, they, what do they do? Well, if we again think more broadly about Paul's theology of marriage and sexuality, I would suggest to you there is another piece to grab hold of here. And I think it's the piece, don't, 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 don't jump to conclusions, I think it's the piece of the husband's headship from Ephesians chapter five, okay? Now stay with me, stay with me. We have to notice what kind of husbandly headship is exhorted there. In the first place, in verse 25, Paul tells us that husbands are to lead in laying themselves down for the interest of their wife. And in verse 28 in particular, he says the husband should lay himself down in the pursuit of his wife's bodily interests. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. Here's what he's saying. Husbands, you guys love your own bodies. I know that. You should be looking out for your wife's bodily interests and pleasures and needs just as intentionally, if not more so, than you do your own. Stalemate, broken. It is the husband's job to take the lead in putting her first. Right? What a beautiful even if in some ways, right, and sometimes challenging to sort out kind of moment. The husband is not a manipulator. He's not a demander. He is a pursuer of marital intimacy. And don't, do not misunderstand me when I say that. He's not just a pursuer of sex. Sex is an expression of intimacy. It is not the only expression of intimacy. So while that is appropriate to pursue, he's pursuing intimacy more holistically. An intimacy which does have a place inside the bedroom, but needs to start outside the bedroom. <clears throat> Maybe some of us, all of us, have room to grow in that area. Okay, great, great, right? Start with, where, where, where are you today? Start with today's faithfulness. What's the next step? Do that. Maybe some of us need to apologize to a spouse this afternoon for ways we have pursued or haven't pursued things we have pursued or, or haven't, um, ways that were reductionistic rather than holistic, that'd be great. Hard, perhaps. Humble yourself, have that conversation. And if it feels extremely difficult, again, we've got help available. Reach out to the leadership. They are practiced in positioning help for people and couples who need it. Okay, chunk number two, verses six through seven. <clears throat> Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind, one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry 
than to burn with passion. Okay. Um, again, what's briefly touched on here gets more extensive treatment in the sermon that Neil's going to preach in two weeks, so I'm going to defer a lot of that to him. Again, I'm very excited for that. Uh, but I do want to say a few things. First one, um, Paul makes this concession in verse 6. It could go with verse 7. I, think, I, I tend to think it goes with verse 5. So if that's the case, what he's saying is, hey, there's this sex fast. You could declare it jointly, but you don't have to. It's not, I'm not requiring that. You could do it. You don't have to. I think, think that's it. I could be wrong. Um, verses 6 and 7, Paul addresses, each has his own gift, one of one kind, one of another. There he's talking about the gifts of singleness and marriage in particular, right? And he's refusing to adopt for the either or. He's refusing to say that sex is, or excuse me, marriage and sex is more sp- uh, spiritual than singleness or singleness is more spiritual uh, than, than, than the married estate. He does dignify the gift of singleness, but he does not accept the premise that marriage, if that's what God gifts you with and calls you to, is somehow a compromise, spiritually speaking. He is going to say that given our time in redemptive history, that the gift of singleness does come with some distinct advantages. But again, that's something Neil's going to unpack for us in a couple of weeks In verses 8 and 9, he takes what he said about the gifts of marriage and singleness. He applies it to the category of those who are unmarried and widows. He says it's good for those who are currently single to remain as he is, but he doesn't require the unmarried and the widow to refrain from marriage or from remarrying. In verse 9, he makes this comment about better to uh, marry than to burn with passion. And we all go, what's that talking about? Burning with passion uh, may prompt a single person to consider if God is leading him or her to a change in station in life, right? Maybe, maybe God's leading me to consider getting married. But if a person's current life station is single, then he or she is living out that gift until God leads them to change the station. And when that's hard to do, as undoubtedly it is, the person is drawing on their fullness of life in Christ, which transcends their station in life anyway. All right, I do want to make a couple of uh, theses on how singleness as a gift can be expressive of gospel truth as well, right? I don't want to miss, uh, I don't want to miss that. Uh, here's the first one. Very much in harmony with what Paul's saying here. Um, singleness is not a preparatory phase to a mature life in Christ that can only happen in marriage. It's not a preparatory phase to a mature life in Christ that can only happen in marriage. Sadly, sometimes Christians talk or act or imply as though maturity can only happen for for married people. And that's not true. Uh, It can happen according to Paul in either station because that station is being governed by the reality of life in in Christ. Um, It's a good rule of thumb that any, any suggestion we would make about what spiritual maturity looks like that would leave out Paul and Jesus as exemplars of spiritual maturity is probably not on very strong footing, right? So it's just, that's a, that's a, that's a mistaken notion. But I do want to say, right, I know some of you are, are you're adult singles, you maybe burn with passion, desire to be married, um, you're not there yet. I want to say that your expression of contentment in the gospel, even if you do desire a spouse, magnifies Jesus as sufficient to meet your soul's deepest needs. That's an expression of gospel beauty, even while it may have, for some of you, some experience of hard associated with it. Um, Thesis number two. The singles, the single person's desire for intimacy, the burning with passion, is not wasted, even if, even if that person never gets to marry. It's not wasted. Some, some, somebody might go, well, hey, you know, the Christian single person, they've got a drive for sexual intimacy as well, and they're living a biblical sexual ethic, so they're not expressing that. Um, what gives? Like, you know, that, is it like a cruel joke? Why, um, is, 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 is it wasted? Is it wasted on them? Answer is no. Uh, think about it like this. Um, we could call that drive for intimacy. We could call that a drive for little eye intimacy, little eye intimacy, right? And it's a drive. Um, 
married person's experience, single person's experience, and, and uh, that drive, even in marriage, cannot be perfectly fulfilled by what little in marriage can offer, right? Here, here's, what no, here's what no couple ever said. No couple ever went on their honeymoon, consummated the relationship, and said, that'll hold us for 50 years, right? It, what ha- it, was, it, it was a fulfilling experience, but, but, but it didn't quench the thirst for that kind of intimacy and union. So eventually they decided that they desired to be intimate again, and then eventually, in, in other words, here, here's the point. Uh, the provisions of this life cannot permanently satisfy that thirst, which must mean I was made for a kind of intimacy that can. Not little I, but capital I. And the single person who uh, is not able to exercise that, uh, that sex drive in the particular context in which they're found is able to exercise the main meaning of his or her sex drive. His or her sex drive is mainly telling them what it's mainly telling all of us, that you were made for intimacy with Christ. And in that experience, it isn't wasted. In fact, again, I know there's hard that can be associated with this, but on the final day, if the single person stands before Christ and goes, you know what? I got life with Christ, but I never got married sexual intimacy. That person, though it may have been hard between point A and point B, will not feel that he or she was cheated. If they got the reality and not the shadow, they won't go, I got shortchanged. Uh, and and I, I, let me just take this one step further, okay? I, I can't not do this. What about the person who experiences same-sex attraction? but is seeking to live with that faithfully before the Lord. I know that some, we, have, we have some folks here at Grace who are in that boat. Maybe somebody would go, that person's, maybe that person's sex drive is wasted. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. Their drive for intimacy is telling them the same thing that your drive for intimacy is telling you, that a married person's drive for intimacy is telling them, that a single person's uh, drive is telling them. It's telling them that you and I were made for capital I intimacy. And I just want you to know, because I know uh, a few of these stories, that the way that, that those of you who are in that situation are leaning into that with faithfulness to the Lord's ability to fill your intimacy tank causes my faith to soar. I am so deeply grateful. I know that's got its own kind of hard attached to that experience, but that's a way that God is using your hard not only for your good, but for the good of many others of us as well. So I just say, I just say thank you to that. Okay, chunk number three. Um, <clears throat> his teaching on divorce and remarriage. Uh, the two sub, is kind of two sub points. Verses 10 and 11, Paul is talking to um, two Christian spouses that are married to one another. He says, to the married, I give this charge, I not the Lord, or excuse me, not I but the Lord. It means he's quoting Jesus' teaching or referencing it. The wife should not separate from her husband, meaning that means divorce, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. So he's citing Jesus, he's talking to two Christians who are married to each other who are wondering, should we divorce each other in order to be more spiritual? And pretty straightforwardly, Paul says, no, if you do, your only recourse is to remarry one another or remain unmarried. I've got a really cool story where I know, I know a couple that they did that. They divorced and then they got convicted and then they remarried one another, but that's going to have to be for another time. Um, down in verse 12, he transitions. He's still talking about divorce, but he says to the rest. What's he talking about here? He's talking about couples where they're not on equal footing in terms of their faith. One's a believer, one isn't. He's talking to couples of, of unequally yoked marriages. So to them, he says, I say, I not the Lord. Okay, footnote. He's just saying, he, all he's saying is, I'm not, I'm not referencing something that Jesus said in his earthly life. He's not saying that my teaching is less authoritative. You can check out 1 Corinthians 14, 37 later on to think about, or to see what Paul thinks about his own teaching. I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. 
For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Two quick preliminary comments here. I know that I'm preaching today to some people who are married to an unbelieving spouse, okay? And I want you to understand that what we're gonna say in these next few moments are forward-looking, not backward-looking, okay? It's not, we're not, um, the intent is not to stir up past grief or regret. It is simply to say, in your station today, what what does Paul want us to know about what today's faithfulness calls for, okay? And number two, again, um, if you feel as though you're in danger in your marriage, please speak to someone after the service. Paul is not saying that you should stay in your marriage and quietly endure abuse. Okay, just take that off the table. What they're saying to him is, come on, right? At least, at least if I'm married to an unbeliever, it would be more spiritual to, to end that marriage, right? And Paul says, no, if they'll stay, you should too. You should not seek to initiate a divorce on the assumption that that would be more pleasing to the Lord. And he says that the reason they should be open to staying married or seeking to stay married, right? He gives that in verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife and vice versa. It seems that there is an advantage, right, to the unbeliever to live in the presence of one who speaks, reflects, embodies the gospel. It's not a guarantee that the unbelieving spouse will be saved, but there's an advantage so much so that Paul can say down in verse 16, how do you know whether or not God might choose to use your expression of steadfast love to be the instrument that leads your spouse to Christ? The exception is found in verse 15 that all pertains unless the unbelieving spouse is the one who divorces the believer. And we're not gonna do the whole theology of divorce and remarriage. I know there are probably people here who even who will disagree with what I say, but, but I, I take this to mean that just like Jesus' provision of uh, sexual infidelity that Paul's saying, in this case, the, the spouse leaves, divorces, abandons you. You don't have to try to force them to stay and you are permitted to remarry in the Lord. I know there's disagreement that maybe get taken up on another occasion. But having said that, this decision, this settled decision to divorce and to leave the marriage is a settled and final decision, okay? I think sometimes we mistakenly try to leverage the abandonment category a little bit too wide. He's not talking about falling out of love or marriages that have lost a spark. He is telling Christians who are married to unbelievers who don't feel like soulmates. They may, they may get along pretty well functionally, but they don't feel like soulmates. He's saying stay, as long as they'll stay and they're not endangering you. And if that sort of person shouldn't be seeking a divorce, then neither should most of us. Okay, I know there are hard cases. I know there are hard cases here. But God, given all that marriage means, he does not intend for marriages to be easily dissolved. And Paul himself knows that marriage is hard. It's not a surprise. I mean, later on in verse 28, he talks about marriage as having worldly troubles. And he says, one, one of the advantages of singleness is that it'll spare you some of the worldly troubles that are associated with marriage. So he's not naive. But in the main, those worldly troubles are troubles that we vowed to endure when we entered our marital unions. Do you remember your wedding day? When I officiate at weddings, I often ask couples to reflect on Psalm 15:4 with me before they give their vows. Psalm 15, David says, who can dwell on God's holy hill? And part of the answer is the statement, the one who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. Okay? And then I use, I'll elaborate with a, like a paragraph, like the following. Of course we know that Jesus himself supremely swore to his own hurt when he vowed to love us to the uttermost. It cost him everything, and praise God, he was faithful to the end. As we've already seen, the love of Christ for you is the point of your marriage, is the point of the vows that you, the couple, are about to make. You're pledging to be a man or woman of your word, not only on days like today when life calls you to rejoice, but on far more difficult days to come when life calls on you to suffer with one another, and in some cases on behalf of one another. So be reminded, right, still talking to the couple, that the declaration and vows that you utter feel light and easy today, but there will be days to come that will challenge the sweetness and ease of saying this vow, even in the best marriages. The point of today is that you're swearing a vow that in some ways will cost you. 
And when that cost comes due, you are pledging not to change or back away. The vow of grace, sworn to one's own hurt, says to your spouse, not only when you're not at your best, but even when you're at your worst and your lowest, my feelings may buckle, but my commitment to love by God's grace will stand fast for you after the pattern of his love for me. Okay, that's the end of my wedding spiel. But that vow, it's a covenant vow, and what it does is it's squeezing us into places that are hard but good, isn't it? When you're feeling, if you've been married more than a week, you know your feelings will buckle, right? What was so easy to say on the wedding day will buckle at times. But the vow is a reminder to us that there's something bigger than us, outside of us, over us, to which we've been pledged and by which we are strengthened. It is a pinch. It's a covenantal pinch that reminds us, repent, forgive, rinse, repeat, till death do us part. All right, last, last thought. We're done here almost. Back to, back to the beginning. What if someone says, what if someone says, I can't see how God can possibly redeem my hard situation? It's a good question. There are lots of things that we can't see about our current situations right now, right? There's a lot we can't see. But just because you and I can't see what God is doing in our hard situation doesn't mean he isn't doing something, even something profound. Remember the disciples and how they despaired of destroyed hopes on crucifixion Friday? They couldn't see. But now we can see. And we call it Good Friday as a result, don't we? The world's worst day. And the hands of God became the world's best day. I know it's easier to say than it is to do, but it doesn't make it any less true. And that is one of the reasons that we gather together on a weekly basis to rehearse Redemption's story as we did in sung worship at the beginning of the service today as a means of helping fan faith into roaring flame in one another's lives. We may be called to lean into hard situations. <clears throat> Yours may be marital, you may, may, may be, have something else going on. But whatever hard situation we've been called to lean into, we've been called to do so from having received the security of Christ's superior steadfast love. So friend, the most faithful thing that any of us can do today is to lean more deeply into the enjoyment and satisfaction of that love. Walt's gonna come and lead us in a concluding hymn, and as he does so, at the end of that, the prayer team will be scattered around the room. Some of you may need help today, and they're here to receive you and begin praying uh, with you and for you and initiating that process.